Well, I'll, you know, I'll just be, be honest. I've already, <laughs> already had like three people ask me this morning, are you, are you doing okay? I'm doing okay. And it was really kind of heavy, heavy to study this this week. In, in some ways, hard to even read the text. And I'm not, I'm not trying to conjure up any feelings in you, okay? We already passed the plate. Calm down. It's not about that, it's just about this text. It is heavy. It's heavy because this is our Jesus, our Lord, who was mocked and spat upon and struck and scourged and crucified. And yet the cross is ground zero for the grace of God. If you are one who is here, who is a sinner saved by grace, if you love the grace of God, if you know that you need God's grace because you know yourself and what you do and the things that you don't do and all the thoughts that you think, if you know those things to be true as I do, if you're glad that there's not a TV over your head at all times broadcasting what you're thinking about people as you talk to them, then you know that the cross and what God did through His Son by His Spirit on the cross is ground zero for His grace, the grace that now reconciles us to the love of God the Father. So perhaps it's appropriate that as we're in Mark, we're really, we're really in and about the cross for three weeks. John discussed the cross a bit last week. If you're new this morning, this will be week one for you, and, and next week we're going to look at Jesus on the cross and the actual death of Christ. It's appropriate that Mark and the other gospel writers take this time to point us to the cross, that we might have our heads lifted up from all the stuff going on inside of you and your life and all the things going on in the world, indeed just the things we were reading about in the news this morning that that grieve us. We are to have our heads lifted up and to behold and look upon the cross. It is the heart of our faith. It is central to the work of God in redemption. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you and me to be saved from sin and death and Satan. There is no hope. Perhaps that's why Paul tells the well-to-do, smart, good-looking Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, I am so glad that when I came to you, I didn't come with all these fancy words and, you know, TED Talks and I was the best speaker with the best illustrations. I knew one thing. Christ and Him crucified. Perhaps it's also why Paul, as he is dealing with the problem of the Judaizers and the church in Galatia and their their legalism, right? Believe in Jesus, be saved, and now do all these things that Torah requires. Perhaps that is why Paul says to them, no, I'm not going to boast in any of those things, even though I, Paul, can boast in any of them, right? I was, you know, raised... Jewish circumcised on the whatever day it was, Gamaliel, Paul was like the man. He was like a Harvard, Cambridge professor of Jewishness. He says, no, I will boast only in the cross. And so Mark tells us the story. We've read the the narrative, the story about what happens. Mark's style, it's fast moving. It's very matter of fact. I mean, it's, it's awkwardly matter of fact for us. I mean, when is the last time you witnessed a public execution? It's been, I mean, not on TV, though, <laughs> right? Not in your favorite show. Mark tells us this story that 
that wells up within us both horror and glory. The wages of sin is death. Man's inhumanity to man and yet the glory of God to bring and establish and inaugurate his kingdom forever. So we see the soldiers mocking Jesus. Simon, who's conscripted to carry the crossbar, the inscription above the cross. The sojourners passing by on their way to the Passover feast in Jerusalem as the city swells to five to ten times its normal size, mocking the Lord Jesus Christ and the scribes and Pharisees, so smug and confident in in the fact that they think they have won. That is the story in our text, but what is the significance? And so this morning, what, I, what I'd like to do, because we've heard the story, we've read it, you can continue to read it, is dive into three things that I, I think we need to understand for the significance of this passage, which all hang on this, this line, this line from one of our favorite hymns, how deep the Father's love for us. That's the story of this text, how deep the Father's love for us. So Three things about the significance of Mark 15, 16 to 32. First of all, the cross. Second, a covenant. And third, a kingdom. The cross, a covenant, a kingdom. The cross was and remains a symbol of man's justice. Maximizing deterrence against law-breaking. In Rome in particular, it was a symbol of their power and their control over the people that they had conquered and now dominated, even as they allowed those people to have the breadcrumbs of their faith and practice, right? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, it was the peace of Rome until it wasn't. And then it was the cross. A brutal consequence for transgression, a brutal sentence for crimes, not only the physical pain of the cross, but the shame of it, and not only the shame of it, but the public shame of it, such that it would drive into the hearts of all who walked by fear. The cross is truly a grotesque invention. It is horrible. It is As we used to say in the skateboard days, gnarly. It reminds me of some of the things that we've seen even in recent months. Images of the war in Ukraine. War is hell, period. Or perhaps, again, some of us who are watching the news and following the story of these four kids at the University of Idaho who were slain in the prime of their life. We see these things, these images, we hear these stories, and even in our culture of, you know, overwhelming information coming all the time and compassion fatigue, we we are still not so far from being human that our heart doesn't cry out and go, this is not the way. This is not the way that the world is supposed to be. Wars and rumors of wars. College kids being, you know, killed in their rooms as they sleep. We live in a world where crosses exist. And as a friend of mine said this week, and you may have gotten it from someone else, I don't know, but I loved it, so I wrote it down, death is such an enemy. If you have faced death, if you are facing it in your life right now, if you've come to the end of yourself or you love someone who has, you know that death is such an enemy. And so the first thing I think Mark invites us to do at the cross 
as we are gazing upon the horror and the glory, as Mark so often does, is to hold up the mirror. Negro spiritual, most likely inscribed around the year 1899, begins with these words. You know the song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> you were there. Think of the crowd screaming crucify. It's quite a question. Think of the crowd screaming crucify, demanding control. The disciples running so full of fear. Pilate, you know, realizing that if there's just one more uprising in Galilee that he's going to get the boot. Skeptical of truth, pursuing his own power. And I think Mark, as always, wants us at the cross to hold up the mirror and just simply and humbly, not, not to hurt you or destroy you, not to shame you, not to crush you, because Christ was crushed for you, but to, to humble us at the foot of the cross. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we were there. The Roman cross came by way of the ancient Near Eastern Empire of the Persians. It was first adopted by the Carthaginians and then was used by Rome because the Romans knew it was a horrible way to die and it could certainly uh, scare folks into obedience. And that is the very nature of the law, to be scared into obedience. Not, I'm loved by God and so I want to obey him, not because I have to, but I want to because of his love. But no, the cross for Rome was, you will obey or you will die. And as I said, crucifixions were public. I know we have all these images of what Jesus may have looked like in our head, but people were crucified uh, without pretty white flowing loincloths. They were crucified naked. <laughs> uh, you would bleed out over a period of days, or if they got bored with you, what would they do? Take a bat, you know, kitchen the legs. And then you would suffocate as you tried to hold yourself up to breathe. Your legs were broken. And you would die of suffocation. This was a cruel punishment. And I just think it's important. Again, I want to be careful here. But I think it's so easy for us to say, oh, I would never do that. Or I would never do these sorts of evil. Or that would never be me. And I think part of what the Bible testifies to is that if you or me are in the right situation, as we have seen repeatedly throughout history, actually th this kind of cruelty and evil is in us all. You know, we are, we are one, you know, we are one event that knocks out the entire power grid in this country. <laughs> we are one event away from just seeing how thin the veil of humanity really is, right? Just imagine, could you live one day in your house without power? How about a week? And you've seen all the crazy, you know, zombie movies. You know what starts happening to people. They don't become zombies, but people get crazy. This kind of stuff is in us all. And so when we, we look at the soldiers and their sadism, their mockery, they're beating Jesus. He's, he's charged as an insurrectionist. He's charged with sedition to Rome. But it's not just the mockery of the Roman soldiers. That's tied to the mockery of these sweet Jews who are passing by. And they've got the law. They know that they're called to love God with their heart and soul and mind and strength and their neighbor as their self. Right? So it's easy for us to caricature the soldiers 
oh, these crazy sadistic soldiers, 600 of these guys in the battalion, and they're in Herod's house, and they just want to beat him up. But their mockery is tied to verse 31. There is mockery in us all. For Jews, crucifixion was a curse. And Paul says in Galatians 3.13, quoting Deuteronomy, right? Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And this is why they took Jesus outside the camp, as it were, outside Jerusalem, that he might be crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was a place of judgment. You're away from the temple. You're away from the presence and the power and the love of God. It was a curse for the Jews uh, that, that someone would hang on a tree, that death would, would, would stay in front of everybody's faces. One interpreter of the Deuteronomy passage that Paul quotes put it this way. It was the point to not let the body be exposed. Death must not be put on display because death is the antithesis of renewal and the new garden and the new heavens and the new earth. Don't pollute the land God has given you. Bury death. Put it away. Because again, death is a great enemy. Get rid of death as soon as you can. Don't shamefully let someone hang because the story of death lies. It lies about who God is and what God is ultimately going to do in the world. For the Jews, there was no, I mean, we, we can't, we have no categories, okay? We just don't, sorry. For the Jews, there was no way that a Messiah could be crucified, there's just no way. So again, before we're too quick to, you know, mock the mockers and all these good little Jews, you know, you can imagine little boys and little girls throwing tomatoes and cabbage at Jesus or whatever as they're walking to the Passover because their parents are whispering to them, this guy said he was Messiah, there's no way because that is a curse right there. Perhaps that's why Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross of Christ is just foolishness, Right? Jews demand signs, Greeks demand reasons, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God. It's a stumbling block. It is a stumbling block to our autonomy, to our thinking so highly of ourselves, to our saying, of course, not out loud and in polite company, but to our saying to ourselves, I would never do that. I'm not capable of that. I wouldn't do what those people over there do. I'm not like them. You know, that kind of evil is far beyond me. It's a stumbling block because what the cross says is actually that's how deep the need is for all of us. This is how far God had to go to save even the, quote, nicest person. This is how far a holy and perfect and just God had to go. And here's the good news. It's how far he went. The Jews looked at Jesus, the Romans looked at Jesus' weakness, the epitome of weakness and shame, bloody and naked, hanging, helpless, weakness, not victory, and we love victory. Again, we love having it all together, and we love people to hang out with that have it all together, or at least the appearance of. We love victory, but... Jesus reminds us that his power is not made perfect in our human understandings of victory, but his power is made perfect in weakness. 
And so the cross abandoned, but the cross is the place where we really behold the beautiful fruition of the plan of God. So the cross leads us to a covenant. I will go as far as to say, pretentiously, you can't understand the cross as more than the Roman execution of a rebel Jew without understanding the covenant, without understanding the way that God makes and keeps his promises in the world. Or another way to put it, the way that God's justice and love work together so that we who are sinners might be saved and forgiven, our sins atoned for and brought undeserving but fully loved into the family of God. The cross is about this atonement. It is about God himself saying man cannot save himself, so I will go, the God-man, and be a substitute, the great exchange. I will stand in your place. The cross is all about God's justice. He cannot wince at sin. God is just. We want God to be just, right? Look at people that live really bad lives and do really horrible things and then just die fat and happy. We want to believe and know that there is justice for them, if not in this life, then in the next. But we also desperately need God's love because if we were to all get what we deserve, that would not be good news for us. Thank God, because of Christ, we don't get what we deserve. God's justice and his love together. We want both and we need both. And, it, and the cross is God's climactic fulfillment of his covenant promises to his people. To be brief, a covenant is a promise that is made. With oaths and vows, it is binding and it is often in this context in the ancient Near East that is sealed with blood. So again, think about the Lord's Supper here, all right? In the ancient Near East, the, the king and whoever he was making a contract with, they would kill an animal. This is really, this is grotesque and bloody. And they would put the animals on both sides of them, make a little path. And then the king would walk through first, and the other party would walk through second. That was like the big handshake. That's why the word bereshit in Hebrew, covenant, means to cut a covenant. To cut a covenant. This is what's being pictured, again, in circumcision and in all the covenants of Scripture. Abraham, Moses, Noah, David. Both parties would walk through and they would make this promise. And here's what you were saying. If we keep what we've agreed to, we will live. But if we break the promise, if one of us breaks the promise, may we be torn asunder, ripped apart, slaughtered and slain like a spotless lamb, like this animal on the ground. This is what Jesus is saying when he is saying, this is my blood shed for you. This is the, my blood. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is the path. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way. Because in the cross, Jesus is cut, as it were, to satisfy the covenant requirements of God in his justice for man's sin that he might forgive us and bring us to himself. Jesus is cut off literally. As it were, he is circumcised on the cross. He is the only begotten son, the regenerative nature of God, and he is cut off from his father and from the world 
in that moment, in his humanity, that God might bring us into his family. Now, I know this is all kind of gory and bloody, but I want it to also be beautiful. Because God isn't just a God who, who makes promises, he keeps them. And I know for some of you this morning, you're thinking, I don't know about that. I've been sad. Or, or my, you know, I look at what's going on with my kids or my grandkids or, or what's going on in the world. And I just, is God really there? Does he really care? Does it matter? Is he going to do something about it? And the fact that God is willing to send his one and only son to be the fulfillment of all those placeholders in the Old Testament. Every bull, every ram, every dove was just a placeholder that looked to Christ. Christ, because he is fully God and fully man, is the only and can be the only perfect sacrifice for sin. Consider the flood of Noah. God brings judgment to the world. It's a covenant. In a sense, it's a baptism. Those who are apart from God are, by their own designs and desires, judged. But those who are in Christ, the ark, are saved. For them, the baptismal waters are life and hope and a new creation. But God says, I will never flood the earth again. And yet, how can God, again, reconcile to himself those who honestly, deep down, <laughs> have zero hope of saving themselves? Paul says you were dead in your sins and trespasses, right? It's not like, oh, I'm a pretty good person and I need some medicine, so let me hobble on down to CVS. No, you're, you're dead at the bottom of the sea. You need resurrection, not the medicine you can hobble out to find. We, we know what that medicine is, right? All the little things we do to cope and protect ourselves and take away the pain. No, we need a resurrection. God says, I will never flood this earth again, but instead I will flood my son. Jesus takes on the full weight, the full flood, as it were, of all judgment, all cruelty, all shame, all exposure. He bore it all. And the Bible is clear that he had to die. You know, without going too deep into this, um, you know, th think of... Think of the worst things. Maybe not the worst things you've done, but the things that you've seen. All of that gets poured onto Jesus in a single moment. He had to die to atone for those things. And he had to be God and infinite and all-powerful to be able to take them on as a pure and spotless sacrifice that he might actually take them and absorb them. And, and so Jesus could cry out at that moment, it is finished. The cross also reminds us that it's God who, who saves and not us. It's interesting. Some commentators say that Golgotha, the place of the skull, is the same place where the Old Testament Mount Moriah was. That's where Abraham and Isaac went. And you guys know the story, or maybe you don't, actually. <laughs> story of Abraham and Isaac. The Lord says, you're going to sacrifice your son Isaac. Let's go up to the top. He starts to build the altar. You've got the knife in the hand, and God in his mercy provides what? A substitute. A ram, right, that they sacrifice. Except for here, there is no substitute. It is God's one and only beloved Son. There is no ram, there is no other. It is Jesus Himself who stays on the cross. Just like in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, right? They cut the animal, they do the thing, and what does God do to Abraham? He puts him to sleep. 
And God shows up in this theophany, this vision of Christ and a smoldering fire pot and walks through the covenant as if God is saying, I will not only make this promise, but I will keep this promise. I will do it. I will save. And that again is looking forward to the cross. I just want to commend to us this morning, there is so much love here. There's so much love for you here. There's so much love for you by name, for you and the people you love. How deep the Father's love for us. Look at what the Father has done. So so whatever you're feeling and and suffering and hurting, and, and I know for some of you, you're doing great, and for others, you barely got here today. Most Sundays, I'm somewhere in the middle. Look at what the Father has done to not only talk about how much he loves you, but to sign it, seal it, and deliver it perfectly and forever with such great assurance. Because if every horrendous sin came down on Jesus, and all we need to do is trust in his finished work that it is finished, then there is hope for us, not just today, not just at the moment of salvation, but in our hardest, darkest times when we feel furthest away from God. When we feel furthest away from God, Christ is still as close to God as can be because of the cross. And you know what he's doing? Standing next to God as your great high priest in heaven, he is interceding for you. And every little temptation and mockery that comes from the devil's soldiers or the passers-by, this is not your child. Look what they did. They messed up again. They're still struggling with the same stuff. And Jesus says, look at the hands, look at the feet. And he says to his father, they are mine. Let's pray. Father, you stayed you stayed in it with us in your promises. And Jesus, even though they came to tempt you like the devil in Matthew 4 in the garden, you know, turn a stone into bread, come down, call the kingdoms, come down from the cross, save yourself. Jesus, you knew that if you came down from the cross, you could save yourself but you couldn't save us. And you chose to stay. So thank you, Jesus, that at the cross, even though those mockers and haters, us and our sin, they thought they were making fun of you and they crowned you and put a purple robe on you. Oh, irony of cosmic ironies, they were literally coronating the king of the universe. Because at the cross, Jesus, you paid it all so that in our shame, in our hurt, our pain, the cruelty done to us, what we do to others, what's most deeply hidden in our hearts, the stuff we can't even look at, you declare over all of it, if we trust you, I have paid it all. There is such great hope for us in the cross. So, Father, as we come to this Lord's Supper, this covenant renewal meal. May we be be reminded by the simple bread and the juice that this is us by faith alone, not by works, not by deserving anything. We were in the crowd. This is us by trusting in Jesus Christ and the cross, walking through the cut covenant and being invited once again into your family. That is the best news in the world. Oh, it's so different than all of man's systems of power. 
all the other worldviews, all the other religious persuasions, the little g-gods. We say it with humility, Lord, but this is different news. This is good news that you have invited us to come. Even though it is our sin that put you there, because of your great love for us, we are the very reason you stayed. And may we rejoice in that as we feast on that promise now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.